Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Rochelle Grow, and I'm the host of Allergic to Small Talk. I'm an expat living in the UK. I own two businesses, have my executive MBA from Pepperdine University, and I come riding dirty, having fallen from the polished corporate world. Allergic to Small Talk is a show about how to grow your small business through networking, plus the tools and resources needed to develop your foundation as a business owner. If you're allergic to small talk, get ready for big conversations that are delivered to you in bite-sized chunks that you can implement right away to transform the way you view, operate, and grow your business. This is Allergic to Small Talk by Cut Class. One of the most important things to do after you're done networking is to book in a one-to-one with the people you found interesting in the room. What's up, y'all? And welcome back to Allergic to Small Talk. You can catch me here every week, or you can say what's up to me on Insta at It's Row Grow. All right, y'all, let's get into it. In this episode, I'm going to walk you through eight questions you should ask someone to do an effective one-to-one. Plus, you're going to hear me do a real one-to-one with Joanna Hooper. Joanna is a CEO of Limited Peak Performance. I won't give you a full background on Joanna because that's what our one-to-one will uncover. The goal of a one-to-one is to give you the opportunity to get to know the other person better. Plus, it's going to help you understand how you can help them reach their business goals. In return, the other person is going to get to know you and your business goals as well. Your job is to educate them to be your mini salesperson without them even knowing it. I would avoid trying to sell to that person you're meeting with and instead focus on building a relationship with them first. Before I dive into the questions, please remember to research the person before your one-to-one. Look at their website or their social media accounts and gather as much info as you can because what you find will fuel your conversation. Also, block out about 45 minutes to an hour to have a proper one-to-one. Lastly, if you want this full list of questions, you can access them in the podcast description. All right, let's dive into the eight questions now. Number one, open with questions that can allow you both to find some common ground. I started with where I met Joanna, and that was at a networking group called Only. And what I opened with was, I just really wanted to know how long she'd been in the group and how is it going for her? In addition, I asked where she lives and because it's England, we touch on the weather. You really can't have a conversation with anybody in England without touching on the weather. While this part of the conversation is classed as small talk, it's necessary to get to the bigger conversations. Number two. Transition into what you found interesting about that person prior to your one-to-one. I spoke about Joanna's TED Talk that she had listed on her website. Number three, make it all about them. And what I mean by this is, I want you to connect with them on something you know is personal for them. Something that they care about. Why? This disarms them and opens them up for those bigger conversations. It also says, I respect you and your time so much so that I did research before I hopped onto this one-to-one. As you'll notice, in my one-to-one with Joanna, I talk about her background in the military. It was a major part of her life 
And it's what's guided her to do what she's doing now. Number four, figure out what they're really passionate about. If you can't pinpoint what they're passionate about prior to your one-to-one, you can literally ask them, what are you passionate about? Number five, begin to understand their business by asking who they work with and what problem they solve. Number six, figure out who their ideal client is. This will really help you understand who in your network you can connect them with. And this gives you a clear picture of the type of businesses or clients that they work with. Number seven, ask them what their big goals are for the year. This will help you get a big picture of their business. And again, it helps you understand who in your network you can connect them with. And lastly, number eight, ask how you can help them reach their goals. Don't get spooked out by this question. This allows them to really share where they need help. You'll really be surprised at what you uncover. You might uncover that they want an introduction to a specific person that you know, or perhaps they're looking to be on more podcasts. Maybe they're looking for more speaking engagements. I mean, there's so many ways that you can help another business owner reach their goals besides buying their product or their service. So make sure you ask, how can you help them reach their goals? So there you have it. Those are the eight questions that I like to stick to when I'm doing a one-to-one with someone. If you like these eight questions, remember, they'll be in the podcast description. Before we dive into my one-to-one with Joanna, I'd like to note that our one-to-one was one hour long. However, I'm only sharing the portion of our one-to-one where I'm getting to know her. I also did not know Joanna prior to this one-to-one, so you're really getting an inside look to a live one-to-one. Now, let's dive into my one-to-one with Joanna. I hope you enjoy. So first of all, I'd like to really thank you for your time. I'm so excited to get to know you. How long have you been in Only? Oh, it will be three years in April. Oh, so you've kind of been a part of the group since the beginning. Almost, yes. My first meeting was the one that they held at the Solent Hotel, uh, first Monday morning of the month, right about brunch time, something like that. And I think that was one of their first meetings, actually, uh, or one of their earliest ones anyway, certainly. How have you found it since your time in the group? Well, really good. So I think for me, when I first moved to this part of town, I didn't know anybody, let alone in business context. So not only has it helped me kind of obviously have a business network, which I didn't have when I first moved here coming up four years ago, but also I found a bunch of folks that I can really hang out with and get on well and go socializing with as well, which again, I wouldn't have had if I'd just been kind of, if you like, stuck in my local circuit because I'm not a mum, so I wouldn't have met any mums at the school gates or anything like that. You know what I mean? So it would have been really hard for me to meet some folks. So it's been fabulous for that. That's cool. Are you located in Southampton? Near Southampton. I'm, I'm halfway between Portsmouth and Southampton, a place called Whiteley, if you're familiar with it. I am not. I'm in Newcastle. So Oh, yeah, you will not be familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say England a, as a whole is foreign to me. I'm barely getting to know <laughs> Newcastle. So, yeah, definitely down south is like totally foreign to me. So I definitely don't. Oh, it's like Newcastle, just warmer. Okay, Newcastle, but warmer. Okay, actually, today is a bit of a warmer day today. We had snow yesterday, but I think it'll come back with a vengeance and then a couple of yes. days. So. I suspect so. <laughs> <laughs> so I was taking a look at your bio and then I got lost in your website and then I oh, fell into that your... good thing or bad no it's great <laughs> it's really great I just put like my little detective hat on because I really love learning about people and learning about 
how they've gotten to where they are now. And Mm. I learned that you were in the Navy for a really long time. I was. Yes, 23 years. Whoa. Okay. Tell me about your experience. Like, obviously, that's 23 years. It's a long time. But like, why did you enter the Navy? And then like, how did you move up the ranks? And what was your ultimate Mm. goal? So I joined the Navy mainly because I left school with two crappy A-levels back at the time when if you didn't have good A-levels, you didn't go anywhere really. And my father was in the Navy. So it was kind of like a part of the world, if you like, that was exposed to me. Right. And probably I wouldn't have thought about it if my dad hadn't been in the Navy. I'd have probably gone and done, you know, anything, quite frankly. Uh, So I joined at the age of 18 and I had no clear idea about what I wanted to do. I don't know if this is just me or if this was you when you were younger, but I had no clue about how long I was going to stay in the Navy. I didn't have any sort of sense of ambition. I didn't have a goal or anything like that. I just kind of joined and see where it took me. That's super cool. So you made a career for like 23 years. What position did you start at? And then where did you end Mm. your career? So I started off as something that was called a Ren writer. So when I first joined, the Women's Royal Naval Service was still in existence. So I joined as a Wren. And the writer bit was basically a sort of like an administrative clerk. We did stuff around pay and secretarial work and that kind of thing. And then around about four years in, I, I did what they called got their commission. So I then became an officer. Basically, I've done two sets of basic training. One as a rating, one as an officer. Okay. Talk about glutton for punishment. Um, <laughs> I left as a commander as a logistics officer and each time just kind of navigating my way through as pretty much haphazardly as possible, kind of pursuing things that interested me and seeing where they ended up. I was never very good at playing the game, you know, kind of really carefully orchestrating my career or anything like that. I just followed my nose, if I'm honest. That's so cool. Hey you, I wanted to take a minute to talk about the importance of a retrospective. A retrospective is an exercise that allows a team to look back and examine a project, milestone, or even an entire year. It gives everyone on a team a chance to get on the court, get a little dirty, clean up breakdowns, and ultimately look forward to the next wave of business. I recently did a retrospective with my team at Cut Class, and it allowed us to take a look back on our business throughout 2021. We discussed what worked, what didn't work, what was missing, and most importantly, we showed gratitude to one another and asked for gratitude for ourselves. Oftentimes, teams look back on projects from a context of what went right or what went wrong, which can lead to blame culture. But a retrospective flips that approach and reinforces positive performance and behaviors. I challenge you to do your own retrospective and see what you can uncover. I bet you'll be pleasantly surprised as to where it leads you and your business. To grab your retrospective template, there's a link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the show. So there wasn't just all like women's like? Sort of. So this sort of stemmed from the Second World War, actually, or First and Second World War. So this is interesting for me because I think it's a little different from American military. And yes. my, my brother, my brother, David, I love him. He's super awesome. He is a chief in the Navy and he's trying to make master chief. Yes. And so I've learned a lot about the military from his point of view. So yeah. it's really interesting to learn about the UK. Is it it's the England or UK naval? Uh, Royal Navy, Royal. actually. Okay, cool. Excellent. 
so the Royal Navy has been around for hundreds of years and women have only really been a part of that if you like, in the last 100 years or so. And originally, they were almost like an auxiliary part of the Royal Navy. So particularly for the First and Second World Wars, the men were out on the front line, they were busy, you know, there were a whole bunch of jobs that needed doing. And then women basically were able to kind of take part in those jobs. And traditionally, we were sort of communication experts. If you've seen any film, you see banks and banks of women with the old headsets on and things like that. So they would have been Women's Royal Naval Service. There's another expression about, uh, they used to call them ops room lovelies. Uh, This is from a film. So, you know, these women who were in operations rooms, you know, moving the ships around on a large map and things like that. So we we had jobs that were specific to the Women's Royal Naval Service and not equivalent in the Royal Navy as it was the male Royal Navy. And then in 1992, women started to join up and train with the men and they started to go to sea with the men. But the Women's Royal Naval Service still existed for a while. And actually, the Women's Royal Naval Service was only disbanded in 1994 or five. Wow. So for three years. Right. So for three years, I basically lived and worked and trained with the men. But technically, I was a, a Women's Royal Naval Service. So I wore blue stripes, for example, and blue insignia. And it was only when the Wrens were disbanded that we then moved over and we all became part of the Royal Navy. Wow, that's excellent. And so the Royal Navy, is that comprised of each of our countries like Ireland, Wales and yeah. England? Okay, so, cool. Yes. So, so not not the Republic of Ireland, but okay. the parts that make up Great Britain and the United Kingdom. Yes. Ah. So, you know, English, Irish, right. Welsh, Scottish, etc., all part of the Royal Navy. So or in cool. fact, the British military. I love it. That's so cool. Okay. So I did also watch your TEDx in Southampton, mm. which is so yes. cool. I really love your TEDx talk on resilience. Can you just tell me like a little bit about that experience where basically your ship was sinking? Yes. it was it was in danger of capsizing we were very close to capsizing so that was one of the latter jobs I did in Royal Navy in 2008 and I left in 2014 and it was a job that was perfect for me for two reasons the first one is the Antarctic patrol vessel and I'd always said to all of my family if the Antarctic patrol vessel comes up I am doing that one can you imagine going to the Antarctic what a fabulous trip that would be And the second thing was, it was something which meant that I was in charge of my own department. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're an officer being in charge of something, oh, that's your own, your own little mini train set is kind of really intoxicating. So it was an important trip for me anyway. And then, of course, we had the catastrophic incident. And I think there's a couple of things that occurred to me at the time. The first one is none of us know really how we'll react under such difficult circumstances. Not really. We have we have a hope that we might be okay. Right. We might have an indication from something which is, say, 10% of that catastrophic incident, but we've got no real sense of how we'll react. And certainly on board ship, and I think I'll talk about it, not in the TED Talk, but elsewhere, mm-hmm. this, this kind of heroes and zeros So before the incident, we had a load of people who would be considered like the losers on board the ship and yet turn the pressure up and they were amazing under under Ah, difficulty. And then conversely, you had people who, you know, if you like the ship's mascot, you know, super popular, et cetera, but dial at the pressure and they evaporated. Right. So as a result of which you can't tell when you look at people who will be good in a crisis. And that spends, you know, that is equally relevant to me as well. I've no idea how I was going to be in a crisis. And so that incident at the time was, you know, deeply frightening. I was in danger of dying. I think basically if the ship had capsized, I was on the bridge surrounded by glass. So, you know, I was going to get probably shredded by the glass and I was going to drown very quickly. 
neither of which I had planned for that day, if I'm perfectly honest with you. They were not on my list of things to do that day. Right. Probably not. Maybe brushing your teeth, definitely on the yes, schedule, but yes, not. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, you can be in such abject terror, real terror of your right. life and still have to perform the duties that are expected of you. And knowing that the stuff that I was doing had such responsibility. So you've probably seen all of the World War II movies where they have to shut somebody in a space. You know, they, mm-hmm. they kind of do the old door shut and they turn the handle, knowing that they've left people behind because they have to because the ship's sinking. You know, I was really palpably aware of that I had some responsibilities, which might include making some decisions which left people in serious trouble, you know? Gosh, how, I mean, that's just so scary. and Very. I mean, I don't know. Again, like, of course, I'm not in a crisis or in a moment of terror, but I don't know if I'd be able to think on my feet that quickly to make those like split minute decisions, second decisions. Yes. And also, you know, going with your gut. So I talk about, you know, being sort of drowned in data. There's so much information going on at the time. How do you know if you're picking up the right bits and making the right decision? And a lot of the stuff that we talk about, you know, especially because when there's a catastrophic incident, there's a lot of inquiry that goes, you know, public inquiry that goes around afterwards. And you've no idea if you've done something right in the moment or wrong in the moment, you know, you're literally just going along with what's happening around you and hoping for the best that you're doing okay. So that incident, while it was the scariest of my life, is also the proudest because, you know, I didn't, I didn't crumble. I wasn't found in my cabin rocking. I did the job as best as I could. And it shows that actually, even no matter how difficult the circumstances get, I'll still be able to perform, you know, not necessarily at my best, but good enough. Does that kind of situation almost set the foundation for the coaching that you're doing now or one of the major pieces or variables that kind of helps you in your coaching business? Yes, very much so. So the coaching program I've got has got a series of pillars of of content around how we get the best out of people. And for me, the foundation stone is underpinned by our response to stress and our ability to regulate stress in our lives. There's a lovely expression and it basically says under stress, we regress. So if you dial up the pressure, we perform less well. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've got a fairly extreme example of having to function well and lead well <laughs> in, in stress. And it's not every but, day someone's going to be on a boat that's capsizing. One hopes not, no. Right. But every day, if you're a small business owner, there are micro stresses or even major stresses, you know, cash flow crisis. Uh, how are you going to pay your team tomorrow? Yes you know, loss of contracts, all of a sudden, things like that. So there are these stresses that exist in small business ownership. And I guess my key ambition is not only to help small business owners lead a team that they can rely on and be proud of, but also control their own performance in the moment so that they are at their best. Because what we do know is if I've got an ambition to be a great leader, but I'm suffering really badly with stress, the likelihood is I'm not realizing that ambition. So I use my story of a sinking ship partly to kind of normalize or equalize or calibrate, if you like, some of the stress that we feel on day-to-day basis and kind of compare it and go, it's okay, nobody's dying. You know, we're all good. But partly to show that it doesn't matter how difficult the circumstances are, you can still lead really well and helping leaders understand who are they when they're stressed? How does it show up? What impact does it have? And what can they do about it to stop it having such a negative impact on their performance? That's awesome. I think in your TEDx, you ask a question to the audience, like, what is your sinking ship? And Absolutely. while it's not like a catastrophic event that you experienced, that sinking ship is just different for everybody else. Yes. Yeah. I found that when I used to do, because uh, as you might imagine, I get asked to do that talk a lot in different <laughs> sort of derivations sure. of it. And invariably, whenever I'm doing it, somebody always jogs after me and says, 
oh, I've got something. And they'll tell me a story which is, in my world, equally as horrifying. It might be domestic loss. It might be, you know, living with personal circumstances, which are just, you know, horrifying. But there will be their version of it that they're having to contend with and continue to do all the things that we need to and perform as best as we can. So for me, that kind of, you know, what's your sinking ship moment is part provocative, if you like, because I'm not sure we pay attention sometimes to the difficulties we have in our lives and just how much kind of coping or getting on with things that we're doing, but also to encourage people to look at the difficult periods in their time, look at them like they're a sinking ship moment and find the learning within those events, basically. That's so cool. I really love that. I think that's so great that you're able to give businesses a way to identify what their sinking ship would be in their business. So what are some of the businesses that you work with? And are they always going through a crisis or are they dealing with some massive problem? Like what type of business owners, businesses do you work with? It's a real mix, actually. So I'm really blessed to have quite a varied portfolio. So on the one hand, I've got senior folks in defence supplier organisations. Okay. Um, so, you know, unsurprisingly, I come from the defence environment. So working <laughs> with people who supply to defence, you know, they kind of make sense, right? I understand mm-hmm. the nature of their customer and what they're dealing with. What I do notice, it, it doesn't matter whether I'm dealing with a solopreneur or a small business owner or I'm dealing with a senior in a large corporate. Broadly, the conversations they're having are pretty much the same. Mm. And they are, you know, how do I get my team to perform in a way that I like? How do I get the best out of them and get the best out of me? How can I show up as a better leader? So depending on whether or not the problem lies in their team or with a sort of perception about how they might be better, depends on where we start the conversation. But invariably, it's about understanding the relationship between, if you like, employer and employee and how do we maximize that so all of us get the best out of each other. You know, it can be any point in that value chain that I come in and have the conversation. So some people have said, my team are really underperforming. Can you help me? Absolutely. And some people have said, I'm not sure I'm any good at this leadership thing. Can you help me? Absolutely. And everywhere in between, we can start the conversation. What they all have in common is they care. They care enough to make this better. They care enough to think about how they lead people. They care enough to think about the experience that people have on the end of their leadership. And there's some underlying stress that's going on there as well. Yes, invariably. So your question was about points of crisis. The points of crisis can be twofold. Sometimes they come to me because there's a crisis in their business. Sometimes they come to me because they're approaching burnout or breakdown. Ah. And there could be a correlation between the two of those things. You know, maybe they're approaching burnout and breakdown because there's a crisis in their business in some way. I think it's a real shame because invariably people come for coaching when they're stuck when it's already quite broken, as opposed to heading it off at the pass. And one of my encouragements would always be to say to people, if you're starting to see the signs that it might be going a bit wrong, now's the time to call. It's kind of like maintenance, preventative maintenance. Right. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. So what is your ideal client? So for me, it's business owners who are looking at uh, a decent period of growth coming up ahead. And that growth can be in a number of ways. It can be about growth in revenue, can be about growth in business size, can be about growth in market, something like that. And what they want to do is make sure that they're kind of ready for that growth, match fit for that growth, if you like, and that sense of caring. So they know that they've got this big change coming up ahead and they want to do it well. Those folks I can absolutely work with. Cool. So if I'm out in the community and I'm networking, what are some buzzwords that I can listen for to clock, oh, you know what, that could be a good referral for Joanna? 
So I suppose you could either look at what's that expression about pain or gain. So for the pain stakes, what I often hear is people complaining about the performance of their team. You know, my team are rubbish. I can't leave them alone for five minutes. You know, I went on leave for last week. You know, I went on holiday and nothing got done and, you know, that kind of stuff. So you might hear them complaining about their team. Okay. That's a good in. I guess for the growth side of things, you might hear them saying, you know, I'm about to take on more people or, um, oh, you know, I've just won this big contract. I'm going to need to take on more people in order to satisfy it. Or next year, I'm looking to double the business, something like that. And then the key question to say there is how much fit are you for that? That's excellent. Okay, cool. What's your dream client? If you can create your dream client or just know who they are, like, Who's that business for you or who is that client? Golly, that's an excellent question. I've never had to consider that before. I find myself drawn to attributes of the leader rather than attributes of the business. Okay. Okay. So I really love high EQ. Okay. So uh, really conscious about how they show up with other people and how other people kind of think and feel and behave that caring about how good a leader they are. That's super important to me. So here's the thing. I think we have a real responsibility as leaders to be careful of how, you know, we create the weather, right? So we have to be careful about the weather that we create. And I take that really seriously. I see that as a real responsibility. That is my job to make sure that the people around me can perform to their best. So I kind of want to work with people who care about that as well and have that shared sense of responsibility. I think that's where you coined that phrase, leaky leadership. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes. So can you just tell me a little bit about leaky leadership? Because I think that kind of gives a great example as to the weather around leaders. Yeah. So I have been myself and have worked with lots of leaders who, when they're having a bad day, boy, are you having a bad day. <laughs> when I when I was younger, there was a chief that worked for me. And on a run ashore, after a few beers, he basically said to me, do you know that we can tell the mood you're in by the way you walk through the office? Oh, okay. What was really interesting was actually, it was less about how I was feeling about them. It was more about how preoccupied I was with what was going on in my head. But nonetheless, that transmitted as an energy that then made them nervous about coming to ask me anything or coming to approach me. Ah. And that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be the kind of person who people are nervous to approach or don't want to approach. You know, don't get me wrong. The first thing in the morning, I'm probably not my best until the second coffee. But that's <laughs> not about being unpleasant. You know what I mean? So I think the key thing for me is the more we recognize recognize who we are, the more we create that permission for people to say to us, did you know this is Mm. what you're like? Because I think most of us have no clue. And we've certainly got an air gap between, I never intended to be that person and yet there I was. So we've got an air gap between how we intend to be and maybe how it comes across. And the more we can understand that air gap, the better. And that for me is that leaky leadership. It's the sense that you feeling something or thinking something, it kind of oozes out as some kind of miasma or, you know, toxic fog or something like that, which then creates this environment where people find it difficult to approach you or difficult to read you or difficult to take you. Or they find themselves, you know, walking on eggshells or tiptoeing around you or just nine times out of ten not knowing which face they're going to get next so are they going to get grumpy Joanna are they going to get nice Joanna are they going to get absent Joanna you know that kind of sense of who are you and who am I talking to today you know I never want to create that environment and for me that's what leaky leadership is about we are creating environments because we're leaking something that we probably don't intend to yeah and it does take a lot of self-reflection and openness to experience that feedback. Gosh, like 
my team at Cut Class, we do a lot of personal development. We have our own coach and we've done specific training in order to give one another feedback. But sometimes, you know, it can be really tough to of course. take on that feedback. But because of that, it makes us better friends, better relatives, better partners. And I would say the walking on eggshells, sometimes my husband and I We'll use that sometimes if we're both just stressed. It's like, mm. oh God, if we, are you okay? Because I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Yes. But sometimes it feels like you can say that to your partner because you guys are closer. Yes. But it's definitely so important to say in the workplace and get to that level to where you can say those things to one another. And I, I really love that. And that phrase or term leaky leadership, because I've experienced it myself. I remember Back at early in my career, when I was working at a trash company, there was somebody that was in a high up VP position. And my gosh, like, I just remember going, Is he going to be in a good mood today? Is he going to be in a bad mood today? Like, which way do I have to play this? And that's just not a fun position to be in. It's not. And I think if you're serious about your responsibility as a leader and you care about people, you're going to care about whether or not you're creating that environment. And I think that there's an irony, right? So on the one hand, in order to care about people, you have to care about how you lead them. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to be courageous enough to provide that psychological safety that says, it's okay to tell me this thing. And I often reflect on that chief and say, you know, could he have said that to me in the workplace or did he need a couple of beers in order to say that to me. So did he he need Dutch courage, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got layers upon layers of that self-reflection. Not only how do I show up and what impact is it having on people, but how capable do they feel or able do they feel to speak truth to power and tell me what I need to hear in order to help them have a better experience. It's multi-layered in that sense. So do any of your self-evaluation tools help in any of these areas? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me about them? So I've got two tools that I like to use. Both of them have got deeply um, unattractive names, so I won't even say them (laughs) just because they mean nothing. The first one I use is about helping individuals understand what stresses them out. So it looks at four, what I call triggers. Okay. Confidence, control, commitment, and challenge. So the challenge is the extent to which I like to be out of my comfort zone and I like to learn from failure or the only thing I learn is that failure is not to be repeated. Hmm. The commitment. Do I like goals? Do I like to set them? Do I like to achieve them? Or are they a source of stress for me? The control. Do I feel like I have control? Do I feel like I have agency? Can I control my emotions when things go wrong? And obviously the extent to which that those maybe don't go as well as I might like. The last one is the most volatile. This is confidence. Mm. Do I have confidence in my ability? Do I have confidence in my ability to engage and stand up for myself in front of other people? And what I notice invariably is there's an interplay between control and confidence. So the more underconfident I feel, the more controlling I'm likely to become. Because if I can control everything, there's less things to be criticized or to go wrong or something like that. So often when I see leaders with high control, it's very often there's underconfidence in there. They're worried about being found out. They're worried about somebody knowing better than them or doing better than them. So, so long as you can then dial up the confidence, then naturally the control dies down. So the first one is all about, you know, what stresses you out and how does that show up and why does it show up the way it does? That's great. That's number one. Number two is all about your leadership shadow. So your leadership style and how effective it is. So are you all about the carrot or all about the stick? Do you like to make all the decisions or do you like other people to make the decisions? You know, so are you consensus driven or directive? Bit about control, a bit about do you like structure or do you like to go, yeah, just run with it, man. So once we understand those components of our leadership shadow, what stresses us out, then we get a real sense of who we are, particularly when you dial up the pressure. 
That's awesome. While you're explaining that, it kind of took me back to different points of my career. I definitely was early in my early 20s. I think I was pretty controlling because my confidence as a leader, because I was a first time Mm -hmm. manager and kind of working my way into my first executive role, it definitely was really controlling because my confidence as a leader wasn't there yet. Now I, you know, I'm much more collaborative, a much more easygoing love structure. Mm. However, definitely let loose on the reins because I know that there's nothing that people can break. That comes with confidence and time, right? So you can understand, as you say, the more junior you are, And also, I think there's this kind of theory that says if you're the leader, you should have all the answers. And I think as you get older, you realize that you can't have all the answers. So you let go of needing to have all the answers. But again, when you're kind of more more young, more junior, something like that, if you don't have the answers, are you worth being a leader? You know, that I think that's what kind of goes through our mind. And I don't want to have all the answers at the point where I'm at. I'm like, that's stressful. Thinking that (laughs) I could have all the answers, that in itself would cause me stress. (laughs) Agreed. I think it's not just that as well. I think we know that actually the wealth of diversity of thought and ideas and all that kind of stuff that lies with other people is far, far and away more than I could generate on my own. I love co-creation because on my own, eh, you know, with other people, gosh, look how rich it gets really quickly. Yeah. Wow. That's really great. So what are your big goals coming up for 2022? We're ending the year now. What are your big goals for your business? I like to think about it in three R's, reach, reputation and revenue. In revenue terms, I'm always looking to, if I do a factor analysis, that it's 1.5 based on last year. So I can kind of continue to see this incremental growth. In terms of reach and reputation, kind of being known as somebody who can help small business owners, you know, lead a business that can grow and be successful. That's what I'd love to be known for. Without sounding grandiose, I'd love to be the go-to small business coach, you know, kind of helping people with that. And in terms of reach, I just, I really like the idea of going to the States. I know, right? I said it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Rochelle has the scoop. I would like to go international with my work. I think in a lot of respects, America has a really nice approach to both ex-military and also coaching. They're already miles ahead. They've kind of gotten over this, ooh, isn't a coach luxurious or a bit, you know, or a bit extravagant. They kind of see it for what it is, which is actually, if you want to be great, if you want to be a great sports player, you have a coach. If you want to be a great group, great business owner, get a coach. So that's my thing next year is see if I can... If I can go across the pond, as they say. Great. So I heard the three R's. I know one area where I think I can help, but Ooh, what goodness. is it that you're looking for in terms like how can I contribute to those three R's? Like what are things that I could do within my network? How can I shout about this? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'm always really keen to do is to have as many public speaking opportunities as possible. Invariably, I do that paid or pro bono, depending on the nature of the conversation and the nature of the organization. And you've seen me in action. So my TED talk is an example (laughs) of the kind of stuff that I can do and kind of talk about and anything around that topic, really. So love speaking opportunities. I'm currently a tutor with both Winchester and Portsmouth University on some of the topics I'm passionate about. So if you know any other organizations that are looking for people who can talk about leadership and change and employee engagement and things like that, that's fab. And anyone, you know, moaning about their team, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Excellent. So there's definitely a lot that I can work with. And right off the top of my head, there's definitely some people that I can put you into connection with. But obviously, my whole life was created in America. So <laughs> so you might know some folks. I might think. know some people. might know some people that you can kind of start reaching out to. And my 
brother obviously is in the military and knows so mm. many people that have left the military. And that's actually really nice synergy for me to mm. make a connection there. I hope this episode inspires you to book a one-to-one with someone you find interesting at your next event. And if you need a list of these questions, remember, you can find them in the podcast description. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Allergic to Small Talk is a production of Cut Class, a place where you can access me, Rochelle Grow, and Leslie Levito. We teach the world how to start and grow businesses without a formal classroom. Executively produced by me, Rochelle Grow, and Cut Class. Creative direction by Sho Kazanjian. Audio editor and producer, Tom McGeoch. And music is by Fami Kaira. If you'd like to access more free resources, check out our sister podcast, Out to Launch, hosted by Cut Class's co-founder, Leslie Levito. She teaches people how to ditch their 9 to 5 to start their own business. See ya! See ya!